Matthew chapter 16, we'll be picking up at verse 13 in just a moment. This text that we're about to read and and study this morning is a really pivotal text in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a hinge point. Something significant is going to happen in this text that speaks to the very identity of Christ. So up until this point, we've watched, we've been journeying with the disciples and we've watched them as they progress through different uh, understandings or awarenesses of who Jesus is. Initially, they were invited to come follow Jesus as rabbi, as teacher, and, and so they get to know Jesus as teacher. But we've watched as they've also seen him act the role of the prophet in the Gospel of Matthew. And then just a few weeks ago, we were in the boat with them on that, that during the midst of that, that storm where Jesus walks on the water and comes to them, and they proclaim Jesus to be the Son of God. So there's been this unfolding revelation of who Jesus is to the disciples. But up until this point in Matthew's gospel, they have not proclaimed him to be Christ or Messiah. And that is about to change. So picking up, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you Simon, son of Jonah? For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, this is a dense passage. There's a lot that we could explore here. There are many paths that we could go down that are are very deep, and they can take us all the way back into history and all the way back into biblical history, but we don't have time to chase all of that today. So we're going to have to pick and choose what we focus on. I want to begin with the location. Caesarea Philippi. That's the more modern name of a very ancient place called Peneus. And the only reason this should matter at all to you is because Peneus was where a temple to the Canaanite god Baal was. And so if you were with us last week, we were in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus meets the Canaanite woman and heals her daughter from demon possession. A very intriguing passage that we wrestled with last week. And now in this passage, we have this connection to ancient Canaan. It's interesting, and I think there's probably lots of things that we could do to to bring these two passages together, but we don't have time to do that today. So we need to jump forward in history to know that once the Canaanites were conquered, in came the Greeks and in came the Romans, and they replaced the worship of Baal with the worship of another god named Pan. To this day, you can go to this area, and there's a cave named the Grotto of Pan. 
uh, near Caesarea Philippi. These are interesting. There are interesting things that we could explore here as well. For instance, you might not know a lot about Pan, but he was envisioned as half man, half goat, and had horns. If you colored him red and gave him a pitchfork, he might sound like something else you're familiar with. Pan was a fertility god, but so too was he considered a god of fear. So when things happened in the ancient world, particularly around the area of Caesarea Philippi, scary sounds in the, in the wilderness at night, it was attributed to the god Pan. The cave itself had a pool that was believed in the ancient time to be uh, bottomless, that it went into the very depths of the underworld. So friends, Caesarea Philippi, we read that and you probably thought nothing of it. I'm telling you what we should be thinking right now is this is a scary place. This is an odd place for Jesus to take his disciples to have this interaction with. But we could go even deeper. Because right next to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan city, is an ancient Jewish city called the city of Dan. And if you remember your biblical history, you might remember Dan is important really for one reason in particular. It's the site where Jeroboam built a golden calf and had the Israelites worship it. Now you might be thinking, oh no, that, that's the Exodus story. Uh-uh. It was repeated. Did you remember that? It was repeated later. After the, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Israel was divided after Solomon. You might recall that it was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom retained, or took on the name Judah. Once that happened, the northern kingdom was ruled by a man named Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. And the first act that he did was to build a golden calf to have his people worship that idol. It's no surprise that the northern kingdom soon fell to the Assyrians. So why did Jesus take his disciples to this place that was associated with a foreign god or gods? It was a scary place. Also a place that reminded the Israelites of past sins and failures. Why, why did Jesus take his disciples here? I want to circle back to that, the answer to that question, or what I think may be a possible answer to that at the end of the message today. But first, we need to do a little bit of work on the dialogue. Jesus invites his disciples to share what they have heard others say about him. If you've been paying attention at all, Jesus seems to not care what people think about him in this gospel. He doesn't do things that we would normally think of would garner the favor of people. He says harsh things to the religious leaders. That's maybe not the best track to take if you want to gain followers. He teaches in parables these kind of cryptic ways of, of speaking about the truths of the kingdom of God that are not easily understandable, and often the people are left wondering what in the world did he mean by that. And when he does heal people, he often is asking them not to tell others about it. So... Despite Jesus' what seems to be his intent of keeping his true identity quiet or hidden, word is starting to get out. People are beginning to make conclusions about this man named Jesus from Nazareth. They've seen things, they've heard things. 
And one of the things that people start proclaiming as the gospel is telling us is that Jesus was a prophet. Now, this might not mean a whole lot to us today. And I think, I suspect part of the reason we might not pay attention to this or think too much about this idea is that when we read the Bible, we often are reading it as if it's a linear story. And so we come through the the age of the prophets and we come to the last page of the Old Testament and we flip the page to the New Testament and the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 and we might think that there's been no time that has passed, that we've just slid right from one season into the next. But friends, that's not what's happening in our Bible at all. Four centuries pass from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. Over 400 years goes by where there was not a prophet of God that came to Israel. And now suddenly, John the Baptist comes on the scene. And he is named a prophet at the beginning of the gospel. Which is no doubt why some people were connecting John and Jesus together. Remember, this is all happening before photography. We sometimes forget this. Before TV, before social media. So friends, people might have heard of the man Jesus. And they, some might have even seen him, of course, from a distance. Very few would have been able to see him face to face, up close. And, and then the same thing is happening with John. So people don't have a bunch of images that are being passed around. This is Jesus. This is John. But they are hearing stories, and they might be seeing from a distance things that are happening. And so it's not surprising that there's a bit of confusion amongst the people. Is John Jesus? Is Jesus John? Is this one man going by different names? The confusion is happening. In any case, what we do know is that the Jews believed a prophet would come who would prepare the way for God's new king. And so they read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, looking for signs that the Messiah was coming, the king that was foretold. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 is one such passage that would have been read in Jesus' day as one of these foretelling um, pieces of scripture. It says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people were looking for the fulfillment of words like that and other words in the Old Testament that a prophet would return. So they were looking for Elijah. They were looking for Jeremiah to come. And when the text says that to us, it's not as if they are expecting the resurrected Elijah to show up on the scene or the resurrected Jeremiah or some other prophet, but one like Elijah, one like Jeremiah, a prophet that is like those that have come before us will come at the end and lead the way for the Messiah to come. And what's happening, it seems, from what is told in this passage, is that some people have believed that Jesus is that prophet. That Jesus is the prophet that's preparing the way for the coming Messiah. But you and I, the readers of this gospel, the ones that have the perspective of time, know that they haven't got it quite right, have they? From the very beginning of, the, of, of Matthew's gospel, we know that the prophet that prepares the way is John the Baptist. He's declared as much in this gospel. That he prepares the way for Jesus the Messiah. Now, 
Jesus is not content with hearing what others have to say. They're not quite right in what they've assumed about Jesus, are they? So maybe he's really interested in, well, what do you have to say about me? Who do you think that I am? And are you surprised that Peter takes the lead on that? We were with Peter just a a few weeks ago when he stepped out of the boat for crying out loud. What an amazing thought that he stepped out of the boat. So is it surprising to us that Peter is the one that speaks first? Probably not. And you need to understand that Peter is a significant disciple in this gospel and the other gospels as well and also in the book of Acts. It is clear that he is a foundational leader in the early church. But lest we think that we should elevate him and, and think that he's somehow a super disciple, come back next week. <laughs> because he's going to crash and burn in a moment. <laughs> poor, poor Peter. But he gets it right in this case. He shines in today's text. So let's give him his, his due. Uh, and in fact, after he declares that Jesus is the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ, it means the same thing, the anointed one. Hebrew is Messiah. Jesus praises him for this. Many of us have come to this same conclusion as well. I think that's why you're here, right? Why else would we be here? Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ. He's the one that is setting right all the wrongs in this world. It is through him that salvation is coming. But we have 2,000 years of history to help us. We have 2,000 years of Christians believing this. So it's a little bit easier for us to come to that conclusion, I think, today than it was for Peter to be the one to vocalize this at the moment because nobody else had vocalized that. And Jesus proclaims a blessing over Peter, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's a lot that is written about this in the commentaries and lots of debates about these words. What does it mean? But I don't think we need to resolve any of that today because here's what I want to focus on. Not the first part of the sentence, but the last part. I will build my church. Did you know that the word that is translated there as church, ekklesia in the Greek, is only used two times in the Gospels. Here and in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. That's the only two times that we're going to find this word, this Greek word, ekklesia, that we have translated here as church, in the Gospels. But friends, once we get to the book of Acts, and once we get to the epistles, oh, this word is going to be all over the place, because what, does, what is ecclesia? It is the called out community, the gathered community that is formed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the church. It's an important word for us in the New Testament, but it's interesting that it's only listed here and in the next chapter uh, in Matthew's gospel. So the question is, did Jesus coin this term, ecclesia? And he didn't. In fact, if we know that this was a familiar term uh, to Jewish people in Jesus' day, and the reason that we know this is, did you know that the Old Testament was translated into Greek? This happened a few centuries before Jesus was born. And so we can go back and we can, if you read Greek, I dabble in Greek, I don't read it, uh, But those that do read it tell us that if you go back and read it, then what you will find all throughout the Old Testament is this word, ecclesia. 
Because anywhere the Old Testament speaks about the people of God, the people shaped and formed by Yahweh, called to be his people, anytime the scriptures are talking about the gathered community of Israelites, the Greek word that is used is ekklesia. So when the disciples hear Jesus declare that I will build my church, my ecclesia. What I'm trying to get you to see is that this was a known term, and it would have brought to mind a lot of the Old Testament. When they hear Jesus speak, ecclesia, they would have thought about Abraham and the covenant. They would have thought about Moses and the exodus and the giving of the Torah. They would have thought about the promised land, and maybe they would have thought about some of the failures that happened as well. And they would have, I think, been connecting the dots and have already connected the dots that what Jesus is doing at that moment and that time is, is a continuation of that story. It's not disconnected from the Old Testament and the history of the Israelites that, that Jesus is furthering this story. But a shocking thing has happened in that sentence. Did you pick up on it? Did you notice that Jesus is picking up on an ancient idea, this community, this gathered together people about, uh, that God has gathered together, but he names it mine. I will build my ecclesia, my church. On the heels of Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus declares his intent to reshape the people of God. So what you need to recognize is that the identity of this called out group, this ecclesia, is moving away from the nation of Israel. That's what the Old Testament is telling us. That's that story. The identity is built around the nation of Israel. To now Jesus is helping to reshape the people of God around Jesus himself, the Messiah. The identity of Jesus' church is Jesus himself. Are you with me? Jesus, in, Jesus is declaring that this is his intent. Again, I don't want you to hear that this somehow disconnects what is happening at this moment to the Old Testament. We shouldn't write off the Old Testament. That's not the intent here. In fact, I wonder if we should remember the ancient city of Dan at this point. That maybe part of the reason Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea, the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is where Dan would have been as well, is so that he can correct an ancient wrong, a place that was sadness, a place of a remembrance that reminded the people of God in the past of their failure, their greatest sin. They bowed down to a foreign god. Now Jesus takes his disciples to this place and is revisioning what the people of God should be built around him, the one true God. Are you with me? Maybe this is part of the reason that Jesus takes them there. But as important as this declaration is, Jesus isn't done in this passage. If we're paying attention, we can see two things that Jesus wants to highlight about this new community that he's forming around himself as Messiah. One of them involves the gates of Hades, and one of them involves the idea of binding and loosening. 
Now, we don't have time to cover both of these today, but I'm going to pick up on the second one, the binding and loosening next week as we come back together because we're going to study the very next passage and I think we can make a connection here. So today we're going to focus, we're going to end on the gates of Hades. Doesn't that sound like fun? I should have had it so that the temperature in here rose a little bit. (laughs) The gates of Hades. Hmm. Friends, I think it's interesting that Jesus has chosen Caesarea Philippi with its cave that was believed to be connected to the underworld as the location for this teaching. It's as if Jesus has taken his ragtag group of disciples to the very gates of Hades themselves so that they can't miss the point of what he's wanting to say to them. Now maybe a picture comes to mind of the army of God storming the gates of hell. Notice the text says Hades, not hell, but sometimes we, ha- we mix these two up. And, and we might have an image that I was thinking about this that is more like the end of... Uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Any fans of the Lord of the Ring movies, books? Uh, it's okay if you're not. Um, but there is this image that's pretty powerful at the end where, where they come to the gates. The good guys come to the gates, the, the black gates of Mordor. And they're surrounded at the end of the movie and there's, you wonder what's going to happen. And of course the good guys win. But I sometimes wonder when we hear the gates of Hades, if that's the image that we have in our mind, that, that what Jesus is calling his disciples to is to storm the gates of hell, to, to take up arms, to fight the spiritual battle against the devil and all his principalities. But friends, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in this text. Because when the gates of Hades is used in scripture, it's used to speak about death. That's what it implies. That's what it's smo- supposed to mean. It's the place where the dead go. And so the gates of Hades is a metaphor in scripture for death itself. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and by extension to you today, is that death will not defeat his people. What? Are you even with me? Come on, people, wake up. Death will not defeat his newly shaped people called the church. Okay, all right. You're with me. You checked out. You're, you, I don't know what happened. I lost you for a second. This is not a call to arms, okay? That's not what this is. That's not what this passage is, is about. This is a passage about declaring victory. Now, friends, this is radical because this is before the cross. Jesus is going to taste death. So this passage isn't saying to us that you and I, true disciples of Jesus Christ, won't taste physical death. We know many have. Jesus himself has tasted death. But did that tomb win? Did the cross win? Did it contain Jesus, or did the resurrection transform all of what we understand about death? That in fact, God took this tool of separation and now has made it a tool of relationship of salvation. That he's transformed death into this amazing gift that now resurrection can happen. And Jesus takes his disciples to this place of fear, 
this place that reminds people of the underworld, this place where the dead people go. And at the very gates themselves, Jesus declares to 12 disciples, you will be victorious. And friends, we are here today 2,000 years later because guess what? It worked. (laughs) He is victorious. So here's where I want to land this plane. It's not like the ancient world was the only place of fear, is it? Friends, as I watch what's going on in our society and around the world, in fact, a lot of the narrative is based on fear. We have every reason to be afraid right now. If, if it's not one natural disaster after another, another shooting that happens for no apparent reason at all, that life can be sacrificed just in a blink of an eye, all the, the societal shifts and changes that are happening right now, there's reason to be fearful. But then I come to this text, and Jesus takes his disciples to this place of fear, this place that symbolizes death, and he says, friends, we are victorious. And I want to say to the church in the 21st century, do you believe that? That we are a part of of the victorious story, that no matter how much the world is changing, no matter how much there's reasons to fear what's going on, we don't have to live in fear. In fact, John writes later in his epistle, perfect love drives out fear. 1 John chapter 4, it's a beautiful passage of scripture. Perfect love drives out fear. Who is the author of perfect love? Well, it's God himself. It's, it's Jesus, the, the son of the living God that is forming this new people, this ecclesia, this church. His people centered around the identity of who he is, the perfect God of love. And if fear cannot exist where there is love, perfect love, then friends, it seems to me the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century should not be a church of fear. We can lament And we can cry out to God, oh, God, why is this happening? Absolutely. But in the midst of all of that, you and I should have confidence that Christ overcomes. That his people will survive. That we'll go on to the next generation. And I wonder if we had that confidence, if we truly believe that as his disciples, if you and I would live differently in this world that our witness might be different. That the testimony of our lives to our neighbors and our coworkers, if it might be different, that we would look different than everybody else around us because we, the people of God, this called out community that proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Christ, Messiah, the one, that we're gonna be formed by, by perfect love not fear. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would come forward. We're going to close with a song this morning. I'm going to mix up the order just a bit, Tyler. We'll we'll have you guys do the song and then I'll do announcements at the end. I want to give us a few moments to wrestle with these words that Jesus has given us and we're going to sing a song about resurrection power. I think it's fitting for us to sing that this morning. So if you would like to join in 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 singing, I'm going to invite you to stand. God, in these closing moments of worship, 
where we've been wrestling with a text that is truly, I think, remarkable in many ways. I don't know exactly what you want to say to each of us. I'm not sure what you're saying right now to my friends in front of me, but God, would you help us to make decisions, commitments, to to offer you our lives in these closing moments of worship so that we can be your people before shaped and formed by who you are as we go out into the world. In these closing moments, God, would you continue to speak to us?